Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. I'm fine, Alistair. I sure had fun today with that scene, didn't you? Yeah, you're you know, dirty. And that one, everybody's going to think, yeah, they just think it's you. <laughs> exactly. That's why I did it. And and also, um, my pussy cat is grabbing me today. He's He's got all his paws <laughs> in my hand, and he's making me pet his belly. So, how are you? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Before we introduce tonight's guest, I'm going to give it to you, Tamara, and you can tell them what's going on in our world. Okay. Well, that would be Ravencrest that we want to talk about, which has to do with that dirty thing we wrote today. So let me tell you all about it. In a remote part of California, Ravencrest Manor, imported stone by stone from England more than two centuries ago, looms tall and terrifying, gathering its dark and unnatural powers and drawing those it wants as its own. You're supposed to laugh right here, maniacally. Um, Thank you. In Exorcism, book three of the Ravencrest saga, something evil is stirring in the deep, dark waters of the estate's indoor pool. As ghostly jazz age parties fill the air with phantom music within the mansion, a maid is visited nightly by a demon lover, and governess Belinda Moreland is haunted by the tormented spirit of Violet LeBlanc, a silent movie star who was driven mad in her prime and wants Belinda to help her in search in her search for justice. The Ravencrest Saga series is first re- released in serialized installments, and the first two episodes, Begotten and Incubus, are available now on Amazon. The third one is coming soon. In fact, it came a whole lot today, to be honest with you. Alistair? It did. It did. Uh, also, if you need to brush up on the Ravencrest Saga, you can get the full, the first two full volumes um, on Amazon in ebook and a paperback. The, that is The Ghosts of Ravencrest and The Witches of Ravencrest. Both are available now. Um, all right, again, you're listening to Thorn and Cross, Haunted Nights Live. Uh, you can learn more about what we do at our websites, alistaircross.com and tamarthorn.com, or you can visit our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com. If you tweet, you can uh, hook up with us at at crossalister and at tamarthorn. You can also visit our Haunted Nights Live page on Facebook. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at authorsontheair.com. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. All right. Without further ado, uh, tonight's guest, we're very excited to have Robert Masello. Uh, he is an award-winning journalist and one of the first who have been ins- <laughs> to have been insulted to his face by Donald Trump, which he wears Yay. as a badge of honor. <laughs> a veteran television <laughs> writer who's 
credits include Charmed, Sliders, and Poltergeist the Legacy, and a best-selling novelist uh, whose many novels have been regularly optioned by Hollywood Studios. His newest, The Night Crossing, was published just last week. Publishers Weekly held it as interesting alternate, alternate history in which Masello creatively reimagines the inspiration for Dracula with thrills, frights, and a splendid final confrontation aboard the Titanic. Bram Stoker and Mina Harcourt uh, set off on a harrowing mission through the darkest districts and most desolate workhouses of Victorian London to put uh, an end to a deeply embedded evil. Uh, think Charles Dickens meets Stephen King with mummies, mysterious golden boxes, ancient curses, and one of the worst maritime disasters in recorded history. All right, a native of Chicago, Robert studied uh, writing under the fra- uh, famed novelist Robert Stone and Jeffrey Wolf at Princeton University and now lives the wild bachelor life close to the beach in Santa Monica. Without further ado, please welcome Robert Masello. How are you, Robert? I'm fine, thank yeah. you. Of course, now I, I just want to hear that selection from Ravenscrest <laughs> that you were alluding to earlier. <laughs> that, that sounds pretty hot. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it to you tomorrow when we send you the permanent link to this podcast. Please um, do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, we need to know how you were the one of the first insulted by Trump. Right. Uh, this, this is way back when I was a when I was a journalist in New York uh, in the 1980s, uh-huh. and uh, I was assigned by Town and Country Magazine to do a long profile of Donald Trump, who at that point was just you know a real estate developer, you know, in in New York and building a you know a couple of hotels and the Trump Tower of course and um I'll make it short I went to interview him and he was of course leaning back in a chair on like a white phone with a big desk the size of an aircraft carrier and I kept asking him questions that he was giving me kind of rote answers cuz he'd done so many interviews and I thought I got to write a long profile of this guy I got to get him interested so I finally said did you get into real estate because your family was already in real estate, or did you get into it because you had an innate interest? And that's when he finally, like, focused on me. And he said, um, you know, when I got out of Wharton, I had friends who went into stuff like entertainment and banking. There's no serious money there. There's only two places to make serious money, oil and real estate. And that's when I said, well, and freelance writing being the third. Um, that That's what got his attention. And he looked at me and said, yeah. Take a guy like you. You seem like a smart guy. What a stupid decision. What are you ever going to have? <laughs> and he, and for the next five or ten minutes, he proceeded to paint a dismal portrait of my life, which also was scarily accurate. Um, that's what bothered me. Because <laughs> he's saying, if you, you know, if you have an apartment, it's probably a dump. I'm going, yeah, that's true. He goes, if you're driving a car, it's secondhand. I'm going, well, actually, I don't even have a car. <laughs> and and, and if, you, if you get a date, she's not going to be good looking. I'm going, actually, I've been going to the movies alone a lot lately. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, yeah, well, it was New York. Yeah, nobody had cars in New York except uh, you know, limos. Limos maybe picking you up and dropping yeah. you off, but uh, but no, but that was um, that was back in like 1983, and uh, so at least I can say I've actually spent time in the company of an American president. Um, you know, <laughs> I wish I could have chosen differently, but there we have it. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I don't know. You think I can spin a novel out of that somehow? I don't know. Oh, I'll bet. Well, you might. 
<laughs> wow. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I, I put it on my Match.com profile, you know, so uh, <laughs> one of the first to be insulted to his face by the president. Yeah. So, Speaking of the 80s, you and I probably go back almost that far. Boy, the yeah, 90s yeah. anyway. I, I, met, I, think yeah. I, I think we met in um, right when I got here, which was 1991, actually, is when I got to California. That's when my first book came out, so it had to be a book signing, probably Dark Delicacies. Could have been Dark Delicacies. There was also, um, it's where I, I met some other people that we both know. I was There was a little used bookstore and new, and it was in Santa Monica. I don't know if I met you there, Bonnie. Oh, Dan. yeah. Could be. I can't, I can't remember what it was called, but um, but I used to go I in there a that. lot. And, of course, now, yeah. it's just, boy, the, the dearth of bookstores is just sad. Yeah, it's it's Dark Delicacies. That's it. At least yeah, well, Dark Delicacies there. is one of the great stalwarts mm-hmm. and uh you know all of us who write in this genre you know worship at the altar of Dell and sue howison and we're so grateful to that yeah. store i know i am in fact i put Dell howison in one of my books years ago as a character oh did you <laughs> yeah it was a novel wow. i forget which one i think it was bestiary but i i had him uh in the book and uh described in that distinctive uh appearance of his you know oh yes yes he has great hair yeah, great. Yeah. He has the best hair. Yeah. Boy. Um boy, when we met, we were both doing book signings. This was before you started doing a lot of screen play or uh TV what do you call it? Teleplay? Yeah, yeah. TV uh, writing, screen yeah. editor. Yeah. And and then you did that for a while, but I loved your books. I still do. And this new one, The Night Crossing, sounds absolutely fantastic. I well, love you know, thank you. That. I mean, it's, I, I had done the television writing for a while, you know, uh, Charmed and Sliders mm-hmm. and Poltergeist and stuff like that. Um, and it's certainly lucrative television writing. Um, and yeah. That's really why you do it. But I'm not sure it was the most congenial space for me because there are different kinds of writers. Um, and mm-hmm. um, some are really into the collegial atmosphere. And the, I mean, I'm sociable. I like being in a room, but it, it, if I'm in a room with a bunch of people, we're just telling stories, we're not getting work done. For me to write, I right. sort of need to be alone and in my own space. And I, I'll admit I do like whatever story is being told. If I'm telling it, I like it mm-hmm. to be told my way. Sure, yeah. I, it, it would be weird to write with a – I mean, Alistair and I write together every day, all day on Skype, but that's different. That's just two people. We mailed. It's it's very old. But but, but even uh, then, that's complicated. I mean, in, in television, yeah, there's yeah. like eight people, and so it's really collaborative. Yeah. Because you know, and that, the network notes and the studio people, everybody gets involved. But even between you know you and Alistair, that's that. It's still you both have to kind of do a mind meld of some kind. I'm sure. Yeah, um, for us yeah. it's easy, but boy, well, we do have more well, people we do that have would not freedom. be. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. we do have freedom to to kind of you know. Go with whichever direction we kind of want to, which is, I think, yeah. uh, the, that's kind of the part that I think would be hard for me about like television is you're kind of contributing yeah. to a world that's already been created, and that would be mm-hmm. kind of tough, I think. So yeah, yeah. When I was like, writing for Charmed, yeah. I, you know, some of the best stuff I wrote, I just thought I have to toss out because it didn't sound like you know 
It, it sounded yeah. like Noel Coward. It didn't sound like Alyssa Milano and Shannon Doherty would be saying these things to each other. Yeah. <laughs> I go, gee, that, that's, that's really witty badinage there, but I'm not sure they would engage in that, you know? Um, <laughs> the characters are pretty much set. Yeah. So funny. Did you wow. ever get to meet Alyssa Milano or Shannon Doherty or any of them? Just kind of like in passing, I didn't really know any of the, you know, the cast is off yeah. shooting someplace, and you're the writer, so you're sitting in a room where they do nothing but bring in, you know, uh, kettle corn and um, Snickers bars and anything else sugared mm. and caffeinated to keep you percolating. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. really, there's nothing that makes you fatter than working on a television show on staff. <laughs> Well, they they keep you corralled in this windowless, airless room with nothing but they're bringing you cappuccinos. And really, in the middle of the table, there was always buckets filled with M&Ms and stuff like that. And you could only resist for so long. Yeah. What show did you enjoy working on the most of those three? Uh, Never been asked that. Um I wrote a bit also for like early edition and stuff, and that was a very good, mm-hmm. very good bunch of writers. That that was the one where the guy got you know tomorrow's newspaper today. Um, Kyle ah. Chandler starred in that one, as you may recall. Um, it was all a matter of you know just finding a couple of congenial you know souls and uh, and Poltergeist Legacy. I was on that for a couple of years. <clears throat> Charmed, I was on more briefly. Um, but each one you have to come in and sort of master their universe and master their tone yeah. and. Uh, and again, you're, you know, you're writing to somebody else's pattern. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you know, when I'm when I write a book, you know, when my books are pretty, you know, uh, outlandish sometimes in their premises. Um, sure. It's still mine to do. I mean, when I was suggesting to the publisher with the Night Crossing, you know, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to tell the purportedly true story behind. Dracula, the story that actually inspired Bram Stoker to later transmute those materials into Dracula. So they'd look at you cockeyed like, do you mean no vampires? I'd go, exactly. It's Bram Stoker, <laughs> but there's, there's not going to be a vampire in sight anywhere. Um, that's a hard sell, actually, you know, um, yeah, because uh-huh. <laughs> they're going, yeah, but Bram Stoker, it's vampires. You go, but this is the precursors. This is what made him think about that. And for somebody who's reading this book, um, I think it's actually, I hope, you know, it's not for me to say, but the idea is that you read this book and the, and the purportedly true story that I'm telling, which, of course, I'm making up, but <laughs> along the way you find all of these clues and you suddenly realize, oh, my gosh, that's what would later become this in the book and story of Dracula. Oh, cool. So that he really did, Bram Stoker, in his true life, knew a guy who was a real person named Arminius Van Berry, who was a Hungarian diplomat. He was very skilled in languages. He worked for the Foreign Office in England. Uh, he was a genius. and But he had the background in Transylvania and all of that, that in some respects he imparted, in some portions, he imparted to Bram Stoker. So you can see in that, like, oh, this is where Professor Van Helsing may have originated. Um, in fact, if you read Dracula, the book, there's a shout-out to Arminius Van Berry in the book. It was almost like Bram Stoker oh. saying, you know, hi there, but also like trying to throw people off the track. Like, it's not Arminius, but of course it was. Um, uh-huh. 
And you will see in, in the character Mina Harcourt, you'll see a precursor to Mina Harker. You'll see in Lucinda Watts, mm-hmm. Lucy Westenra, who was the victim of, of Count uh, Dracula in the book. Um, uh-huh. So, I mean, the idea is, if you've never read Dracula and don't know anything about it, and I don't know anybody in the world who's avoided it, you would still read this mm-hmm. book, I hope, and be able to enjoy the adventure for what it is. But if you're a Dracula fan, you know, you'll uh-huh. you'll keep coming across these little Easter eggs as you go, thinking, wait a minute, that sounds like something he would have later, you know, transformed into an element in the book. Because the my book takes place in uh-huh. 1895, two years before Dracula was published. And then we do a time jump to 1912 for the final act, which is when the uh, when the villains are um, aboard the first unsinkable ship on its maiden voyage, um, and Bram Stoker is able to track them onto it. Very nice. Yeah, I think it sounds no. great. I. I we, I do I, too. we need to get copies of this. We've we've talked about this, and we've both decided we need to get copies of it. And I I and mm-hmm. I love Dracula, and I I also I, I also read your book Blood and Ice, and I thought that that had such a yeah. a, a cool kind of Dracula vibe to it. Yeah, I love that. I do too. Um, you thanks. have such that, that, a good way with yeah. history, science, and all that stuff. Meaty. Well, yeah, that's kind of become, you know, to the extent that I have a, a, a niche at all, that's kind of it. I mean, um, I'm one of those writers who had a really hard time coming up with, and I wrote a bunch, but, you know, contemporary domestic stories set present day, you know, in New York where I used to live or in L.A. here. But And when I stumbled upon the idea of, like, taking actual history <laughs> and historical characters <laughs> and then weaving stories around them and through them, Mm-hmm. Um, it opened like a whole new world to me, and it was fun because I enjoy doing the research. You can get lost in it, which is a mistake, but yeah. I enjoy doing the research into the Titanic, for instance, um, and then yeah. figuring out how do my characters fit into that, You know, where are the scares, where are the plot twists, where are the plot turns, and just you know, uncovering things along the way that I can then incorporate into the books. And, and, and I don't need to tell you guys, you know, truth is always yeah. stranger than fiction. You can't make up really some is. of the stuff you find. <laughs> right now, it's true. It's yeah. true. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I did not know, for instance, the quandary, <laughs> the quandary that several of the society men were in when the Titanic was sinking, because they not only had to make sure that their wives and children with whom they were traveling on deck A got off safely, but they had their mistresses ensconced on deck C. And so they, they, they're like, oh, I got, excuse me, honey, I, I, I just got to run downstairs for just a minute. <laughs> I, I, I know it's a bad time, but excuse me. Um, I thought, I, I, I never thought of that angle. That's kind of interesting. I, I didn't know that they had that kind of... Extra burden. Oh, I love it. That's yeah. Fantastic. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I, I well, and also because it. when I was writing these books, you you also and, and you guys would know this, but you you uncover so much um, contextual, coincidental stuff. Like uh, mm-hmm. the previous book to to the Night Crossing was the Jekyll Revelation, and that was about Robert Louis Stevenson and the writing of the Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Now. When that was made into a stage play in 1888 and opened at the Lyceum Theater in the West End of London, a theater that exists to this day, 
the theater manager there was Bram Stoker. I mean, oh. and oh, wow. Stevenson and Stoker met. And in those days, Stoker was, you know, was still casting around like he was so envious of Robert Louis Stevenson for coming up with Jekyll and Hyde. And he was going, God, if only I could just come up with one really good idea like that. <laughs> um, oh, great. He, he, he was he was writing some crummy gothic gothic tales for like little magazines and uh-huh. things, and and Stoker published a collection of his own stories at his own expense called Under the Sunset. Um, and oh my God, these stories were aimed wow. at children, and it was supposed to be like a Christmas volume, <laughs> as I recall. These are the uh-huh. grimmest, darkest, most despairing <laughs> tales. I thought you you could you read this to a child, he'd throw himself off the roof. I mean, it was just, <laughs> and it did not have a great sale. It was illustrated and everything, so he was out of pocket on that. <laughs> but but wow. Stoker was always looking for that that one great idea, and he so envied people who'd had one, like Stevenson with Jekyll and Hyde. Do you suppose he knew he had one with uh, Dracula? You know, um, it took him years actually to write it, and when the book came out, he got good reviews, but not over-the-top reviews. I mean, it was a mixed reception, generally favorable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the book also, there was a moral backlash against the book, and for reasons that you know I don't, hardly need to explain. I mean... You know, there are, are are scenes in the book where, you know, Dracula is making a slash in his own breast and forcing a woman to suck the blood from the wound while the prostrate husband lies at the foot of the bed. I mean, this was – this is steamy stuff for today, and for its era, this was scandalous. Um, so there there was uh, some kind of, you know, certain amount of moral opprobrium that was attached to that book. Um and it took a while to to sort of get going, and in fact, you know, it, it did fine for him. But what really helped it was, you know, was after he died in 1912, Bram Stoker. Shortly after, in fact, the Titanic uh-huh. sank, uh, which uh-huh. is what put that whole idea into my head. It was interesting to me that it was kind of the end of an age when the Titanic sank and Stoker went down shortly thereafter. Um, but. Um, and, and again, he he was on his last legs then anyway, having had a stroke and all of that. But um, I don't know. I just thought that, that kind of wrapped it up neatly in a way. And um, it wasn't until 1922 when F.W. Murnau made Nosferatu that uh-huh. the book interest in the book really revived. And Stoker's widow, Florence, in fact, sued for copyright infringement. And... She won, and all of the this, uh, all of the prints of that film were supposed to have been destroyed. Um, fortunately, a couple of them made it through, which is why we can see Nosferatu wow. today. Um, oh wow! So, but she won that lawsuit, and then in 1931, I think it was, you can check me on that, uh, is when Bela Lugosi made the Universal Pictures version with her permission, and when Bela Lugosi uh-huh. did it, then it, it took off again. So Stoker didn't enjoy all of the the uh, success and riches that came from the book, but to some extent, his his widow did. Wow, I'm glad she wow, did. I didn't know that. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So I'm curious though, when you were when you were uh, you, you said that kind of put the idea in your head, the sinking of the Titanic and and uh, the death of, of Bram Stoker. Is that 
is that really when you got the idea for this? Because, I mean, this is a really interesting, I don't think I ever would have, you know, I love Dracula. I'm a, I'm a Dracula fanatic. I've probably read it a half a dozen times just in the last couple of years. Oh, good. And, uh, yeah, I love it. And uh, I, I don't think I ever would have really thought, you know, I wonder what the, the you know, what inspired all this. And I mean, I mean, what is it that, that it's a lame question, but where did you get this idea to, to, to do it this way? Well, no, I, don't, I, I mean, for me, I, I want to deal with this material, and I, I'm always looking for a way to come at it from an angle that I can't think that it's been come at from. <laughs> you know, it's uh, and with something like Dracula, it's pretty hard to come. You know, there's over 170 Dracula movies, I think, out in the, in the world already. Um, so you're, you're thinking, how do I, how do I reinvent this, or what do I add to this, to this story? And I was interested in Bram Stoker, the actual person. I will say, and I share with you, Alistair, the, the fascination with that book. Dracula was the first book that I remember, and I, I always was reading scary stuff when I was a kid, you know, um, that, and I still do. But it was the first book I read where I distinctly remember pulling the chair I was reading in into the corner of the room so nothing could be behind me. And, and, and <laughs> there was a light over my head, one of those Torcher kind of lamps. And I stuck that right behind the chair, but then I put it in the in the corner of the study, which was a very small room in my parents' house in Chicago. I mean, I was so scared. I, you know, I couldn't stop reading it, but I was so scared by that book, I needed to be able to be able to look around in all directions instantly with a bright light shining. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Because that was the first one that, you know, when they're going through the Borgo Pass, I mean, uh, that was enough. It, the, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, I you know my 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 childhood, my writing formative years are similar too because uh um I I remember reading it when I was way 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 too young. I didn't understand a lot of what was happening and uh I remember getting to that scene where the where Dracula was climbing up the wall and it just it freaked me out so bad and it seriously you know to this day it just I'm like I just I want to be that creepy, you know. <laughs> I know, I know. All of yeah. us who write in this genre, we just think, if I could just, if I could just scare somebody <laughs> half as much <laughs> as some of those You're great right. scenes in in that, or you know, I mean, of course, I enjoyed um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein a lot too, um, and it always bugged me. I mean, my God, Boris Karloff was fantastic, but that's just not the creature in that book. You know, that's the creature in the book is articulate and eloquent, in fact, and delivers real speeches. And I and I was stunned when I went. Oh, it's now it's a mumbling monster. But that's that's not how Mary <laughs> Shelley portrayed the creature. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I I read I read I read okay. Frankenstein when I was a lot older. I liked that too. But yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's also I guess there's something I don't I don't know why it is, but there's something like in the Night Crossing and uh, you know Blood and Ice also, and, and of course the Jekyll Revelation. I keep going back to the Victorian era. There is, let's just face it, there's just something about top hats and canes and cabriolets and, and gaslight, and that's spooky. Um, it is. And, it is. And, and it's Victoria that Moore. atmosphere I love, I love, yeah. I mean, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote an essay, in fact, in, in favor of gas lamps. He didn't like the electric lighting that was going in because um, it was going <laughs> to dispel so much of the mystique of, of London as he knew it. Mm-hmm. Right. Much as the first LED lights uh, made I, everything look terrible. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. True. 
No, I agree. I love I love uh, Victorian horror. Did you uh, were you a fan? Did you ever watch uh, Penny Dreadful? Yes, I watched a little of it. Yes. Yeah. Did, did you Did you care for it? I didn't see the whole thing. Um, I, I I think it got a little crazy for me, and there was just too many. Uh, yeah. They were yeah. they, they were trying to pull season. everything into one tent, and yeah. um, it, it wasn't working for me at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah, I felt I felt the same way. I was yeah. excited about it, and I kind of I kind of lost interest after, you know, not too long. But season it was one. a great idea. I think. Yeah. 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 That was interesting. All right. So. The night crossing, the the one thing that I I love about this, and I always point this out when I see this, uh, I love the cover for this book. This is just so cool. I, I did you have any say in the cover, or is it just something someone did? And here you go. I've even got. This a, is it, or? I've even got a secret to tell you about the cover. Well, um, oh, and on the hard cover, um, they sent me a box of them like you know a few weeks ago because it's just out. <clears throat> and um, I did what every author does quite naturally. I slept with a copy the first night. Um, <laughs> I, surely I'm not the only one who does this. <laughs> and during the course of the night, because I'm a troubled sleeper, the cover, the jacket slipped off, which is when I discovered mm-hmm. that this book is so beautiful that they have printed another cover onto the cardboard, you know, the actual firm cardboard oh. cover. And it's different. They, there, there is another oh, wow. graphic wow. below it, which I would never have known was there. If you didn't remove the, the jacket, you wouldn't even know that it was another cover underneath it, which is also wow. quite beautiful. I mean, I, they haven't done that for books since the 50s, you know. And um, yeah. so I was, I was very pleased with that. And, um, sure. and they do, the publisher did consult with me on, um, you know, they, they, what they do is they gave me like several different covers and, what do you, what do you think and uh and I was able to in fact the cover that you're looking at was one they'd rejected um we'd gone through really? several oh. and and yeah we were going through permutations and then my editor who's a great guy said uh um well you know there's one other that was passed on for some reason and then he showed me that one and I said I like that one and uh yeah. with a little bit of you know jiggering we were able to make Beautiful. that one be the cover yeah but all of the things oh, they great. suggest are good I I don't have much of an eye um, I'm not good artistically, but uh, I mean, all of theirs were, were good. This one was the one I thought was the most on point. Yeah, yeah. no, it's gorgeous. I I love it. I I you know I always just think would I pick up a book based on the cover alone because I don't care what they say about judging books by their covers. Yes, we do. I yeah. do, and I'm usually right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so when yeah. I see one that I'm like, I would I want to read it just because of the cover. I I have to comment on it, and that's I love this book cover. I love it. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, they had done a study at some point years ago where they, back in the day when there were lots of bookstores, um, and they discovered that when people looking at a table of books uh, with all of them laid out, I think it was it was something crazy. It was like you had an eighth of a second, something like that, to snag an eyeball before the mo- the eye had moved on yeah. to the very next one. So yeah, you know, yeah. I'm always wow. a big big fan of. Um, Simple covers with one strong impression, because that's of all you've really got time to make. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the night, the night crossing came out just just very recently. Um, we wish you the best luck on it. We're looking forward to reading it. Um, mm-hmm. Before we let you go, uh, could you tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and what you do, and of course, the night crossing. 
Well, aside from going on Match.com, you can go to www.robertmasello.com. <laughs> <laughs> That's all one word, Robert and M-A-S-C-L-L-O. Uh, robertmasello.com will get you to my website, which, oh, my God, I just realized I do have to update. <laughs> it's still years <laughs> behind. Um, we were discussing that earlier. Um, and also they can, of course, go to the you know Amazon sales pages, and there's an author page on Amazon or something, which will list all of my previous titles, um, which uh, many of which at least are in this general genre. All right. Yes, they are. All right. Um, as always, you are welcome back anytime. We love having you. Uh, we will be in touch with you regarding the stuff we were talking about before wow. the show. And uh, mm-hmm. yes, and uh, thank you, thank you for being on. You're you're always so much fun. Yes. You're, let's you're, not forget the next time. <laughs> yeah. Great, yes, great. It was back. my you're pleasure. A lot of fun. So, <laughs> yeah, okay, so and I will see anytime. you soon. Okay, great. Okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, Until next week, we wish you haunted nights. And sweet screams. Thank you for listening. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. Classrooms. Imagine what we could do. Gotta go. We'll tell you the rest later. Visit ourkidsfirst.com. That's ourkids1st.com to learn more. Paid for by our schools now.